a two, a one. <sighs> I'm Morgan. I'm Isabel. And this is Nick. And I'm Nick. Yay! <laughs> this is Romance. A podcast about romance novels. About woodland creatures. About bone-in penises. About boats. About the Great White North. About getting your library in order. About getting into weird octagonal houses that you then have to catalog alone during the summer. About honey coercion. About Canada. About mosquitoes. But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And books marketed like romance novels. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of ourselves, we are the most ourselves we have ever been because we are joined for the first time ever, live on air, our producer, Nick. Hi, everybody. Yay! And this week, we are talking about Bear. A novel by Marion Engel. Yes, we were able to trick Nick into coming on to this episode by saying it was a postmodernist masterwork. By a white guy. <laughs> Uh, it's like, you know how some guys are named after their third generation grandpas and they end up with a lady's name? <laughs> like Ashley. Like Ashley. That's how Marion got here. But no, it is a book by a woman. Indeed it is. About sex with a bear. In Canada. Kind of postmodern. Kind of? I don't know, maybe. I think so. <laughs> the bears seem too into it for it to not be. But also, like, decidedly uninterested. Like, the romance around the bears' consent is, like, real complicated. That was honestly the first thing that Claire said. It's like, how does a bear consent? And I was like... I don't know. It was like, and well, they can't get verbal consent. And I was like, oh, good point. Such Maybe a good you point. just don't speak bear. Nick is engaged to be married to a woman named Claire. This is true. 100%. Mm-hmm. Just to, so you know who Claire is. So it's not such an in-joke. <laughs> Everybody's on board. Now, right. listeners, you two know about the happy felicitations that we all are so excited about. Felicitations. Felicity. Yes. Top three American girl doll. Uh, Yeah. She's definitely a top three. Real quick, Nick, rank your top three American girls. If you say Samantha, it's wrong. I swear to Christ. If you say Samantha. Molly. Hell Fair. Yeah. Super fair. Two. Addie. Addie. Yeah, that's right. That is Molly. correct. Mm-hmm. Addie. Mm-hmm. I don't know any other ones. <laughs> <laughs> I know don't my sister had Kit. See. My sister had Kit. Kit's a solid one. She's been all right. Yeah. Privy bougie girl like Samantha. Yeah. So I exactly right. That. But yeah, Molly's my number one. For World sure. There's a podcast that won't be named that tried to come at us about how Samantha's the best, and we put that to bed. Do you know how I know that Claire's a really good person? Because she hates Samantha? No, her favorite American Girl doll was Addie, and she's a white lady. That is a good person. Mine was Molly, and then Felicity, and then I got Kit. The first American Girl doll that I ever met was Addie, because Miss Fisher, my second grade teacher, read all three at the time of her books, which is The Escape from Slavery, The Move to the North, and then The Trying to Get the Brother Out of Slavery. The best. Yeah. Also the most with the highest consequences and the most at stake. Holy shit. It's riveting. Un- it is Compared frankly to the riveting. Girls. Yeah. Like, ooh, Kirsten, you're coming from Sweden and you need to celebrate a special holiday on December 9th. <laughs> Tell me more about your hardships in the North. I hope the other kids in school will understand my brains. <laughs> I hope my excessive whiteness doesn't stand out among the white. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, those books were so good. Anyway. Who's going to give the summary? I think Nick oh, should. Nick, shit. summarize Bear. So we meet a historian named Lou mm-hmm. who gets a letter or such in the mail that there's an estate in northern Canada. We're in like Ontario? We're in Ontario. We are. We're actually on the other side of Superior. We're like um, way up. From Sault Ste. Marie. So we're actually pretty close to the border with the United States. But Oh, wow. I didn't realize we were that close. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, But it's very uninhabited. Yeah. I mean, just like getting up there seemed tricky. No it one is. bugs her at all. Mm-mm. She's on an island. Yeah, completely isolated, which is good because some weird goes down. And she's up there to basically inventory a deceased family's estate. And it's a Colonel Cray. Mm-hmm. And he is perhaps going to unlock some mysteries into the settlement of that area. And she's going up there to kind of check out what they got, what can be discerned from um, what they may have and ultimately gets involved with a bear. Sexually. Sexually involved. Romantically, Emotionally. Emotionally, certainly. There's a deep connection with this bear. I'm not convinced it's the first time this bear's uh, been around the block. That is such an interesting point. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. important to know. With a human. I know who you're talking about. Oh, I know who I'm talking about. (laughs) I think I do. I don't even think there's just one. I think it's just like generally known. Also, how old is this bear? I think like legit question. There is this like question in the novel of like, is this the same bear that the first Colonel Cray tamed or have they been replenishing bears? Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't think a bear has to be magically endowed in order to be raped by a white lady (laughs) in the wilderness. I think the perspective of the novel, in her own view, is trying to justify what she's doing to a bear by being like, is it the same bear? And so I think it's an easy trap to fall down. I have nothing but questions. Mm. Is it a magic bear? What do we do about consent around the bear? The bear is chained to a shed and lives Mm. a miserable life and she has to feed it what is essentially kibble and like that's the beginning of their relationship and then she's like I'm gonna take it off its chain I'm like yeah that's a better idea and then like she doesn't but they say don't take him off his chain because then he could go and kill livestock right which is real sure the bear should have never been on that island for sure is the thing because you think like bears in Canada does it bear shit in the woods it does if it's in Canada sure does this bear is not a native bear ooh what do you mean by that they found a cub in the wilderness and raised it yeah they like got a bear to the island and we're like you're my pet bear now yeah you're my guy I'm gonna make you live in the woodshed and I'm gonna feed you kibble and bits and I'm gonna take advantage of that moly tongue and I'm gonna shit next to you so that you know I'm your friend folds laterally was that it yeah yeah. yeah, what does mm. that mean? Pulled laterally? Ooh. Like, like a like hot dog. Yeah, exactly like that. So then it becomes like an anteater tongue, which is how it gets like... Oh! If you were trying to get all up in someone's biz, <laughs> that me? tongue that folds Yeah, you like have, one of uh, both ways. I have the genetic disposition that I can roll my tongue like a taco, so I just assumed when I read that the bear could roll its tongue laterally that that was a special occasion. Like a red and that was different. Yeah, and that was different from what I could do. But it turns out me and the bear... The same. You the might be part bear. Bear's ladies. tongue is much longer. <laughs> Probably you lonely archivist. <laughs> Looking to buddy down with an Ursa Major. Mm. Oh my God. All of the bear stuff in this book. Bear so facts. Much bear. So much bear Bears facts. Bears have a clitoris up inside them. They sure do. Why did do the colonel need to that? write that down? How did the colonel find out about the bear clitoris? 
fact. He's writing in 1829. He's writing in 1829 and he's writing these facts and he's putting them, he's bookmarking them in unrelated text. Yeah, so it's like bare facts sprinkled throughout his octagonal library alone on an island. Wait, I feel Mm -hmm. like we've gotten ahead of ourselves. Full disclosure, (laughs) how did we end up reading this book on a romance novel podcast? Oh, okay. You may ask. Okay, so. Because I do want to point out that we have not read anything blurbed by Margaret Atwood prior to this. We have not. This is special. What's great about Bear (laughs) is like, I was actually talking about this recently. So Bear exists in the romance ephemera in that it's like talked about. Did you know that there's this book where this woman fucks a bear? Everybody knows that it exists and that it's like sort of potentially speculative postmodern feminist fiction from like the 1970s, not unaligned with like Joanna Russ or others. Yeah. Simone comes through with the deep cut yet again. It is unlikely that they're going to know Joanna Ross. She wrote a lot of really important books, including How to Suppress Women's Writing. If you haven't read Joanna Ross, do yourself a favor and like fucking get on that shit. But Bear exists sort of like a shade in like the romance ether where people talk about it, but I had never met anybody, even at RWA, who'd read it. Everybody just talked about it. Owing quite a lot to the cover art, which it turns out was unaccredited in the original publication. I read quite a bit about Bear and its background and Marion Ingle, this was not her first novel and she sent it to her publisher and they said, absolutely not. (laughs) Wonder why they wanted to sit on this gem. But she found another publisher and they hired Penguin. It was like an offshoot of Penguin and an editor of Penguin at a later date decided she was going to dig into who did the cover. It was this famous illustrator is what she discerned, but it was like agreed that it was going to go unaccredited in the text itself. But the cover art features a topless woman with her arms raised and she's wrapped around the hips in what turns out after you read the book, you understand it to be a striped sheet set with blood on it. And then a bear without claws, like the idea of a bear is wrapping its arms around her to cover up her nipples. Mm -hmm. And it looks like a romance novel. It was described as Harlequin-esque, which is an interesting choice for this book, but it was a hit right out the gate. It won awards. Yeah. It was highly respected. And then it kind of died off until 2014 when there was a post on the internet that had a picture of this cover. Amazing. This Harlequin-esque cover with someone who said like, what the fuck Canada? <laughs> and it became a meme. And suddenly all of these hot take articles came out. They were like, bear, the greatest Canadian novel ever written. And they talk about how it's the greatest Canadian novel because no other work perfectly encapsulates the Canadian's close relationship with nature. Mm. Among many other reasons, I would say, I thought this was a very good book. You know, this was a book that like, I will probably turn over in my mind for decades, if not the rest of my life. Yeah. And in that way, the staying power of this narrative did the job that it's supposed to do. Like this book will now not leave my personhood. And it's understood this like ancillary piece of romance ephemera. You're exactly right. Is it a romance novel? Do I have to answer that? Not yet, but you're gonna have to answer it by the end. But it's an interesting question to answer in this EPUB world where people always write books about like fucking Sasquatch. It's true. Although I would say that like one of the things that I found most interesting about this book is like the bear is never made to be sexy. Like the cover itself is super sexy. There's like a Fabio-esque sort of like I'm holding your breasts in place and like whatever. But like the bear itself is like when we first encounter him, he's chained up in a shed. He's smelly. He's like been shitting all over himself. He hasn't had a bath. caked on his butt. Yeah. He's like gross and sad and she talks about like his shoulders and his haunches and his pig eyes. Yeah, pig eyes. I was like... It was very unattractive. 
Pelican Animal. Oh my God, yes. Have you seen the most recent cover of Bear? No. It's just a regular looking sad bear sitting down looking up at the sky and it's like, Oh. Yeah, the first, I would say even two thirds of this novel is about Sad Bear. He is super sad. Where should we start? Should we start with who our heroine is, who we uncover her to be, or our introduction to the bear? I don't know. Where do you guys want to go? Well, that's an interesting question. Where does this story start? Does it start with the bear or does it start with our ostensible heroine? Nick? I I might be using this term wrong, but I kind of got a sense that the bear was like a foil for Lou. I thought that they were kind of the same in a sense. No, I think that's exactly right. I agree. Um, I mean, when we meet Lou, she doesn't live in a basement, but she like essentially she lives in a basement. She works archiving stuff. She has, we come to learn like a weird sexual relationship with her boss. That doesn't seem fulfilling for either of them. No once one, no one week. enjoys it. Once, like it's like scheduled. <laughs> yeah. Like See, on we have, it's time for the boning and it's like, no. Hump day, and, fittingly, just like our release date on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, they bone down on Wednesday. But yeah, I mean, she seems like stagnant and unhappy and the notion of going to this house is like liberating for her. And then she finds this bear that's like kind of her counterpoint like locked in the shed barn whatever it's like shitting on itself it's chained up it's unhappy and she kind of lets it loose let's go in the water you know swim yeah, about it break, gets to rub its bottom on the wet yeah, rocks and break up that old, old poop and then they swim together mm. I think you're like hitting on something really important because when we first meet our heroine in the opening chapters of this book it kind of talks about her coming out of hibernation it's talking about exiting the winter when she's in this dark basement where mm. she works and it's dark and it's cold and she doesn't really have a reason to go out and then slowly the light is going to enter into this cave that she's mm-hmm. in and then she's going to be given this assignment. I think an interesting part of her assignment is that she's supposed to determine if this home, which is architecturally significant and also a secret because it's one of those octagonal homes that like one of the like graham cracker people who is anti-masturbation designed and she's Not like, unlike the house and mother. Yeah. The, the graham cracker people? Yeah. What was that guy's? He's the one who got the whole uh, circumcision thing started Started for Christians here in America. You're welcome. Oh, hey, <laughs> I don't know. It might not be great. <laughs> <laughs> I had a coworker at one point who was really unhappy about his circumcision. <laughs> he, had a, he had a tight circumcision. He was oh. like, I want to go back. He was like, I feel like I'm missing out on a lot of adult pleasure. And I was like, I, I don't know. I, I, we're in the same boat. Mine's not tight. I don't know. What that <laughs> is, but, like, Did you just say I have a tight circumcision? I have a tight circumcision. High and tight. High and tight. Yeah, it's not like a haircut. You know, like I want like like a zero. Of whatever What's the difference? Fade. What's the difference? I don't know. It sounded like an accident. It sounded oh, like something no. you could for if you were like, I have a tight <laughs> circumcision. Excuse me, sir? Yeah. <laughs> I can't tell if the shaft ends. In my- yeah, it seemed kind of like <laughs> iffy. I was like, too much information. But yeah, like, I don't know. <laughs> what are we talking about? <laughs> yeah, where were we? Circumcisions, the grand people, the yeah. cracker. They were like all about getting your humors in balance. Mm-hmm. And like, if you were not oh. horny, that meant your humors weren't in balance. So they were like, don't masturbate because it'll make you like it too much. Wait, Think about wait, it if too you're, much. if you're not horny, your humors are in balance? Right, if you don't you're have a sexual animus, okay. you are in balance. So to be hor- sexual is a problem. If you're horny all the time, place. you're okay. Yeah. No, if you're horny all the time, you're in a bad place. Yeah. If you're horny sometimes, is it okay? No. I never want to be horny. Exactly. You're no, only doing flat. it as a chore to procreate right. because right. that's what the Lord intended. And you're doing okay. it hygienically, whatever that means. What's, I in mean, obviously. <laughs> probably not because you can't do a missionary yeah, in the and shower. And if I'm like 
a, a graham cracker person. Is there running water at this point? I mean, the only yeah. holy way to copulate and to have children, according to the Bible, is in missionary. The oh. <laughs> the River Jordan. In the River Jordan. <laughs> I looked it up. Mm. They make a specific reference, but this man designed this like octagonal style house. It was just like stacked. And he was like, there's enough windows and light it doesn't have like corners you can hide in, mm-hmm. which is really interesting considering what our heroine gets up to in this octagonal home. Yeah. The important part of her project, sorry, is the fact that she is trying to determine if this house would be suitable for a fellowship program with the historical society that she's a part of, um, which means bringing other people into this space which progressively becomes the antithesis of what this space is to her, which is highly personal, highly private. It is her own bear cave. The first thing that she writes to her director when she gets on the island and gets her supplies from Homer, this guy who runs the general store the on the other island. The human she has sex with. The human she has sex with, Homer. The first postcard she writes is like, hey, I got here just fine. I feel like I've been reborn. And like, there's a time where she refers to the house as a womb and like the fact yeah. that it's like octagonal and like the whole way that it's working and has all this stuff. There's a lot happening on this very small island. Yeah. And you know, we talk about the fact that she's isolated, but throughout this second half of the book once it finally gets to be summer because she arrives in May and Mm -hmm. there's snow Mm -hmm. that comes unexpectedly. It's a really short book too. It's so short. Actually the brevity was one of the things that her editor came back to her. Because of the novel's brevity and also that because she fucks a bear in it we can't publish it. Which I think either means like only long books are of value. If you're gonna fuck a bear it's gotta be long. Or if you're gonna fuck a bear you gotta pad it with other shit. So that the bear fucking doesn't take as much space as it does. Yeah. We talk about her isolationism but she specifically talked about once summer hits she's constantly seeing like water skiers who are like waving at her and she's like absolutely not I love that she like I pretended not to see them and I'm like they fucking locked eyes with you Lou they fucking know that you're there and not waving to them so one night she gets a little bit drunk and she's reading (laughs) not even Byron the recollections of the sea captain who was with Byron Trelawney Trelawney and she starts to be like divinations professor exactly Trelawney and Trelawney is cray and like they're all mixing together she takes off all of her clothes while she's petting the bear because she feels like it's very sensuous and then the bear's quote I will never forget this moly tongue Mm. licks her cunt cunt business her business thank you for being civilized uh, she says the word cunt. she does which is she like does. out of nowhere literally out of nowhere and the only time that she says it hot 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 yeah she drops the f-bomb once and yeah. then yeah and says cunt out of nowhere and it's yeah. like huh I guess if like Canada? the first <laughs> time <laughs> the bear know. is performing oral sex like maybe that is the appropriate time to use the term cunt but like she never uses it again I would like to broach the idea of the first love scene of this text is after she goes swimming with the bear and he jumps over her and she gets a little splash and she freaks out. She thinks she's drowning and she crawls onto the bank and she's swimming with him naked. Yep. And he comes up and he starts licking her back. Yep. And as I was reading the description of that, I was in my house by myself and I immediately shut the book. <laughs> like I was... <laughs> I was a 
alarmed by the sexuality. Does something of it. happen though in that scene? No, no he just licks their like back. Sex scene. No, I, I, it no. was just like it's like sun dappled light. It's so yeah. like loud though. Like the yeah. vocabulary of that scene is very very evocative. Like I had absolutely Ugh. no trouble smelling the grass and feeling the water and like a and very large predator. Big mm. tongue on the back, and I was and the so sunshine startled by it because part of me is like, well, I knew this was a book about bear sex. So was I just anticipating that and that's why it startled me? And I was like, oh no, bear sex? Like, did people reading it for the first time without any context have the same experience as me? Where they were like, oh. I would go with no. Reading this from the get-go, knowing what was going to happen, anytime the bear was brought up or anyone was like talking about the bear, I immediately had heightened awareness about like what this bear meant and what it was supposed to signify. Well, that like, if you jump out of a lake and your dog starts licking you, you're not going to be like, oh yeah, this is going somewhere. <laughs> like, no, you're going to be like, that's a normal thing for an animal to do to a person whom it's close to. Yeah. You're not going to be like, oh, that's third base. Like, it's not, <laughs> that's not at all what's going through your mind. But if, if the book is like framing it and let alone like time and history is framing it, we all know that these people, this woman and this bear are going to have a relationship like that frames every action leading up to that event. Which explains entirely that Harlequin-esque cover because it doesn't work unless you know that the bear sex is coming. Yeah. I also think like when you said like these people and like and then corrected to like person and bear, the book is working really, really hard to ascribe a kind of personhood to bear and like through the notes and like the fact that like there are all these like folklores from like various Native American peoples in the area, like who like took bears and like raised them. And like in Japan, they did this thing with bears. And then in Switzerland, they did this other thing with bears where like they like, made them like fight and live together. And I'm like, we've been doing fucking shitty things to bears for a long time, like bear baiting and like identify with them. Yeah, we do. Yeah. You know, like leopards or like tigers or like cats. I feel like bears feel like dogs. Right. Except when they go back on their haunches and then stand like a man. That weird like missing link. And one of the first things that Lou reads about bears that Carrie, right? Mm -hmm. Had left behind was like bears related to raccoons, related to wolverines. And it was like, let's see how approachable we can make this animal. Like there's lots of other ways that you like associate and like run into bears. Like you get bears in your garbage can. You don't realize they're bears, they're raccoons, but it's still the same kind of deal. And I think it's weird, like the way it's making us rethink our relationship to bears and kind of how you're talking about like Darcy's like a foil for just like men in general. Yeah. It almost kind of felt like this bear specifically was like a weird foil for just like a male lover, particularly the way it obviously was operate like in the genre is me being kind of like an outsider, but he hits all the beats of like what like a love interest would be in a romance novel. Yeah, like he's pig-eyed and dumb and an obligation. And the and heroine then he, shapes him. Yeah, you know? she shapes like him, absolutely. Like proximity, and it was weird because it was all nonverbal, but like what they did was loaded, you know, like swimming and like eating and defecating and like all those things are very intimate. It was so. very bodily. Very yeah, bodily. bodily. Corporeal. The- very corporeal. What's so funny is like when I first started reading and she gets to the island after like talking to Homer and he's like, there's this bear that you got to take care of. Yeah, as like a last, he's like, oh, fuck. Uh, FYI. A bear. We would prefer it if you kept the bear alive. I don't know how old it is, but like this other old lady, this toothless Native American. This 100-year-old woman. Yeah, Too talks to the bear and like, it's not dangerous, I don't think. And like, there's this whole like hemming and hawing, which like added a lot of like hesitation to Lou, our heroine, but also raised the stakes of the novel. And then like, I immediately thought of Jane Eyre, like going mm-hmm. to like fucking Rochester's castle. And I was like, oh, 
oh, what would happen if we make Rochester a verbalist beast? There's that point <laughs> at yeah. which the bear's behind her. She spends from like the third time the bear performs oral sex on her forward. <laughs> she spends a lot of her time trying to get the bear to have a bear erection. And she's reading yeah. about bear erections. She knows about the bone-in aspect of it. And she can't get the bear hard. And she's constantly trying to be like fucked as a bear. And she has this moment where the bear is behind her and it opens its mouth and she says she notices that something's missing. I assume that means the bear has been defanged. Mm -hmm. And that really makes the bear a Darcy, I think. The fact that he's not actually dangerous. Did you describe Darcy's defense? Yes. I've never read Pride and Prejudice. I would describe Darcy as defanged. Certainly by the end of the novel. Yeah. Okay. But also I think like his cruelty towards Elizabeth is entirely social. Like, I think the bear in the early parts of the novel, you're like, fuck, it's a bear. You know, like, it could kill you. Yeah. Get away. Werner Herzog wouldn't let that guy's family listen to the tape recordings. Back off. And like, the, the revenant's pretty close. Yeah. 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 And like, Annihilation. Yeah. yeah. Fucking bears. Yeah. But like, yeah. you know, but a we bear that's defanged. But a, Human bears, too. But a bear that's defanged is closer to a romantic partner. But then, of course, at the end of the novel, we are reminded that it is not truly defanged. It's not declawed. It's not declawed. It's not not dangerous. It's not not dangerous, but like, I it mean... It is, in fact, dangerous. And I think, like, without, like, being, like, too pretentious and meta, like, I think there's an undercurrent of, like, any romance novel, especially historicals, where it's, like, there is an element of danger to loving a man. And, like, there is an element of danger. There's an element of surrender. There's an element of, like, life-taking yeah. in loving someone to, like, whatever, like, that pinnacle is. Yeah. So like that scene with the bear where he finally gets his bear boner and it like kind of almost becomes life and death. That didn't read as weird as it maybe should have. So he finally gets a bear boner and she's like, great. Hot to so trot. Time. <laughs> yes, that's like really older opinion. It's so interesting. This is the first time she talks about like getting on all fours. The mm-hmm. other time she tried to give the bear a boner, she was basically doing like what I would consider like very humanistic sexual position. Yeah. Like lying on her back or sitting on his lap or like facing him all the time. Never tried reverse cowgirl. And in this Mm. moment, she gives her back to the bear, Mm -hmm. which indicates utter trust and he claws her back. Mm -hmm. He doesn't enter her. He just claws her back. And then like waddles out of the house. Well, she tells him go on, get out because she's yeah. so upset by. She old yellers him. Yeah. And she's also afraid too. She's afraid that her blood's gonna make him hungry. Yeah. She was also like, ooh, I've been hanging out a bunch. And also, I got the impression that there was also like oral sex happening between them when she was menstruating. So like, mm-hmm. if blood was an issue. I feel like we've already crossed that bridge. Yeah, because she did which talk was weird about. To me. She did talk about when she was menstruating during the book, and she did have the bear perform oral sex on her. She also talks about a moment when she coats herself in honey to try to get the bear to lick her and he doesn't. Yeah, and then she's like upset by it. Do you think the bear was like, I'm not interested in bear stereotypes? Yeah, like I'm more than just like... I'm more than the thing that you're saying. I guess super real though. Super real. I like a good shakshuka toast. Why couldn't it be savory? Why do you always (laughs) lean sweet when I'm a bear? Right? Like why can't it be like French onion dip? And why does it always have to be nice? Nighttime, like. I know more people coat 
put themselves in French <laughs> onion dip for it's a, a sexual experience. Time and I wanted something a little spicy. Yeah. Sure. I wanted like chili peppers. Sure. Like, what are you doing? I want some of your like sour cabbage. Oh. Oh. <laughs> sour cabbage, anyway. Cabbage. Cabbage downstairs. <laughs> just growing cabbage. Just growing the sour cabbage on the property. <laughs> I mean, what happens when a wild animal is like eating you out all the time? Like, I have to assume that it changes the pH balance of your lady parrots. You you know, that's a really good question for a veterinarian. That's such a good question. (laughs) Any of our veterinarian (laughs) listeners out there, any of you, any of of which there are surely at least three. Because if we're saying like like dogs have really clean mouths compared to humans, Mm. so is like. Well, don't put it out there. <laughs> it was like how clean they like. But like, you know, like we always talk about dogs. Moms no, they have way mouths. more antibiotics. Yeah, that's why they can eat dead things. Yeah, and that's why they can like lick their own wounds. Mm-hmm. If yeah. we did that, we would be in trouble. Like, what is yeah. that? What does that do to your lady environment? I don't know. That's a really I'm good question. Maybe that's like goop. That's like Gwyneth Paltrow's next thing, like bear saliva. Bear saliva, moly tongue. Get a dog down there. Once again, Get a bear down there. the tongue was described as a moly tongue. It's a moly tongue. And an ant eater at one point and a taco but what it is <laughs> that's how it looks as a taco god this bear you're diverting your eyes when I, <laughs> I don't want to look directly at it it's like the sun it hurts me <laughs> all right do you guys think that the bear was sexualized before Lou got to the house. Do you think the bear was trained to perform oral sex on human beings? Shit, that is such a good question, Morgan. I don't know if it was trained, but I don't think that that was the first sex relationship that bear is engaged with. Yeah, she comments on the fact that she's really startled by the bear. First time he enters the home, he kind of waddles in and looks up the stairs, and then she looks at the bear, and then he comes up the stairs, and then he goes on his hindquarters to look like a man, and you assume that that's like an intimidation tactic, and she's like, how did the bear even know to get in here. Yeah. Like, okay, yes. It knew its way around the house. That was definitely a tip-off. Yeah. I mean... Lou came the first time, right? Yeah. So, like, how many, like, the human partners have that kind of batting average? Like, one done. <laughs> like, the bear rolls in and, like, understands her machinery well enough. And it's also fairly quick, you yeah, know? It's, it's like, like an abrupt kind of thing. Are we supposed to understand it as, like, oh, wow? Or are we supposed to be, like, hmm? I don't know. And, like, at one point, she's unlocking the house and she hasn't seen a, a skeleton key in a really long time yeah. and she has to think yeah. about that. And then she refers to the bear's tongue in the same way as unlocking herself. Yeah. And I was like, wild. And then we hear the history of the homeowners from... 1829. From Homer. Yep. And the most recent homeowner, I think, was just like a woman. And Homer talks about how she was a real woman. Mm -hmm. And that she was Mm. a lady, but she could sustain on her own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and like hunt and like... No, she hunt, I can't remember. Yeah, she killed a lynx and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Kinds of like... She did... It kept her kitchen clean. Kept her kitchen clean and she killed animals. She was named Colonel. Yeah. Because the only people that can inherit the house have to be named Colonel. Colonel. They have to be colonels. They and have so, to be, yeah, exactly. Yeah, as a workaround, their firstborn daughter, they named her colonel. Too. Right, because they were late parents. Mm-hmm. I would have liked a little bit more like unpacking of that because that was a weird tidbit. Well, she yeah. has that moment where she's like, what could these books possibly provide me that are more vibrant and real than what Homer 
relayed to me verbally. Yeah. Not to get off track, but there were like a number of just like weird bits <laughs> in this book. It would be a nightmare if you got off track on well, this show. Like something that was really strange was like there were two moments that I counted. There might have been more, but like when Lou would fall into these like weird moments of like extreme doubt and depression and yep. anxiety, they were not foreshadowed at all. She was just suddenly like, and I felt super weird and I didn't feel like anything I did mattered. And like she's talking about like this house is up here in the woods. It's like crazy grand and no one knows about it. And it's eventually just not gonna be there. It was really weird. It seemed to like follow intense moments of shame as well. Yeah. Which was also wild, but it wasn't like reflected on. Yeah, this is, that's a really good point. Like this is a book that like is dealing deeply with shame and guilt. Like Mm -hmm. there's clearly trauma that Lou has undergone at some point and she reflects on it very briefly and like not enough. She talks about how she felt like the bear could have been like that strange man that she brought home because Mm -hmm. she was lonely and then it turned out he was not such a good man. She talks about how she had that relationship with a guy and it sucked. It wasn't even a good relationship, but then he left her for a younger woman and she was like overcome with this rage that expressed itself in really violent ways. Oh yeah. And she was talking about how she like expressed her rage in very like childlike ways that made her also she was like feel meaningless like, yeah she like wrote something in chalk and like had all these things that she was like right in front of his office yeah like and she was like I felt like so childlike and insignificant in these moments which also is really weird and yeah. she like didn't feel like a woman almost like not worthy enough for this person but it wasn't like engaged anyway there were so many things which I think almost made this book more interesting is that it just alluded to these moments and mm-hmm. you got to kind of fill in what were like large not like narrative gaps but like who these people are and like how these circumstances arose. But like one of the things that causes her rage to act out and this is something that happens throughout romance novels is the fact that she sees this woman who she has perceived to be young and beautiful and sure she's young but she's not that good looking. She's plain. Mm. She's plain and that fucking sets her off. And this idea of like she feels like the social contract of womanhood has been broken. Like you don't betray Mm. your lover for someone less physically attractive than you. Even though this lover was like a total shitheel and like didn't appreciate her and she didn't like him and the sex wasn't fulfilling and he was like constantly nagging her. Like there's an entire discussion about like that guy being like, oh, is this what you cooked? Is this how you keep your house? And it's like, this guy's a dick. Like the fact that she's so surprised and then shamed and guilty about her reaction to the ending of that relationship and like her burgeoning relationship with Bear elicits a lot of shame. It's like also the use of like capitalization, like bear as name, bear as creature. Like that interplay gets really weird by the end of the novel. Bear, unlike all of the other men she's been with, she has complete control over. Like she determines if he's off the chain or not. She takes him swimming. He appears to voluntarily lick her. And she's like, he's giving this to me. And that makes her want to give something back to him. And then in the final act of the novel, he acts on her and that's when it's all over. And she spends this night sleeping. You think Mm. she's dead at the end of the book, but she wakes up and the sheet is stuck on her back from her blood drying. You know, and then she just like coats it in antibiotic ointment and leaves. I think this idea of like romantic partnership with human men is meant to be like a kind of explanation for what she does with Bear. But by the end, Bear is just as violent and just as unconscionable 
Yeah, but like, that's what's weird about like the thing about Bear. Who she refers to as Bear. He doesn't have a name. Mm-mm. Like Fozzie. What would you name your sex bear? Um, oh. Brief aside. Yeah, brief aside. What would you name I, your sex I bear? I don't know. I was hoping you just... Okay, you gotta think about it. <laughs> All right, like maybe this will jog your memory. I'll think about it. Bear, take me to the bottom of the ocean with you. Bear, swim with me. Bear, put your arms around me and close me. Swim down, down, down with me, bear. Bear, make me comfortable in the world at last. Give me your skin. Bear, I want nothing but this from you. Oh, thank you, Bear. I will keep you safe from strangers and peering eyes forever. Bear, give up your humility. You are not a humble beast. You think your own thoughts. Tell them to me, Bear. Bear, I cannot command you to love me, but I think you love me. What I want is for you to continue to be and to be something to me. No more. Bear. It's very romantic. It is romantic. In thinking about and talking about this now, her relationship with Bear unfolds as we learn about her prior relationships with men. So she has the one that was really shitty, who she felt she acted childlike in front of. We have her weekly appointments with the director. We have Homer, who's emerging as like a new potential interest. At least Homer is like expressing so. And they do have sex. And they do, but it's on her terms, Mm -hmm. which I also liked where it it felt like in the prior descriptions, it felt like sex was something that happened to her, whereas Mm -hmm. she really claimed agency yeah. in her interactions with Homer and, and it really happened on her terms and she even like set it up how she wanted to like because they were drinking the first time when he kind of like puts a move on her and they're moving those trunks out of the basement Yeah. and the second time she's like well I'll bring a bottle but it's like she wants it to happen and almost like wills it to happen and her and Bear have already had like a, a couple hangs so <laughs> it's, couple. Un- it's understood where they're at but like you almost get like she's having her like sexual awakening slash discovery slash redefinition through this animal to have it happen with, like, an actual human being, which I thought was interesting. But there is something of, like, the relationship with Bear that's evocative of something that I think happens maybe in most relationships. I haven't had that many, and I feel bad because my parents do listen to this podcast. But, like, the sex pit phase where you, like, get to know somebody and you're really excited you about them. You remember your sex pit phase? For my sex pit phase. Where you, like, get to know someone and you're really excited and then you finally, like, breach the point where you're comfortable enough to have sex with one another and then it's all you do for weeks, months. Like, food doesn't matter. Or you just <laughs> other incorporate people it. Don't. Or you incorporate <laughs> food. You cover yourself in honey to try to convince your lover yeah. to go down on you. But yeah, like, exactly. Like, the sex pit phase is what she's in with Bear. She just spends days on end with this creature swimming in the sunlight they and don't being naked. They really know each other super well. No one's met each other's family. She has yeah. this moment where she looks at herself in the mirror and she's like, her body is young in that way that you can vaguely see her ribs and she's tan and I remember that idea of like youth being described as vaguely seeing your ribs and I was like well that's very true that resonated but also like the fact that she's like tan and athletic like this mousy librarian type has changed through her relationship with Bear I kind of took it as she was like a little bit emaciated yeah exactly I I don't think she was like healthy necessarily just kind of creepy you know like she understands she's eating sour cabbage and nothing yeah yeah Yeah, and getting eaten out by a bear she's taking a lot of calories yeah she understands She's it as this, like... exercising way more than prior. And youthfulness, <laughs> this healthfulness, this sunshine, this new glow in actuality. She's just, like, obsessed. Like, I would love to read if this book... 
like fluctuated between chapters narrated by Lou and then narrated by Homer and mm. then narrated by the bear. Oh my God. I think that would be a fascinating retelling because I would love to that see Lou good... through another human's eyes and through an animal's eyes and then just whatever the fuck the bear was thinking because it would set us, it would satisfy the issues of consent. I'm assuming it would speak in some kind of like deep, far away kind of way, you know, like uh, it's sure. seen so much, like you can't, time's a relative concept to this bear. Cause Not only like, because like time is a relative concept to like in wild general, animals but like also because like maybe it's a magic bear which like we have it like so the scene that you're talking about Morgan when she like feels like she has a new skin like she shed something gross and like the detritus of her life and like come out young and shiny is after the bear marks her and like she's looking at her naked body to see the scar and she's like I'll keep that and she lost a lot of blood too yeah (laughs) good point good point there's like yeah she has this dazed kind of even when you're reading the book and you can tell it's a very good book because you get all of the sensorialness just from the language. Yeah. The idea of like a halo around everything. <laughs> like, it's true. Which you, like smells and feelings. Oh, it's, it's very oh, tactile. Yeah, it is very good. It might be the greatest Canadian novel ever written. I don't know about that. <laughs> like eight other people have said that, so I don't feel like it's a hot take anymore. <laughs> also, I haven't read that many Canadian novels, obviously. I never like sit down and read a book and I'm like, this is a nice Canadian novel I'm reading. <laughs> like, but this was the first time I was like, I'm reading a product from Canada. It is. It's so insistently Canadian. And it talks about its Canadianness and relativity to its like Englishness and relativity to its Americanness. Like Mm -hmm. it's very much triangulating Canada. Which is so funny because like it does feel like very isolated Canada. Like I don't think it's wrong to feel like this feels like the Northwest Territory. So then when she like mentions like Nebish Island and Sault Ste. Marie, which there's a Canadian Sault Ste. Marie, but it's like literally across the bridge from the American Sault Ste. Marie and the Michigan Upper Peninsula. I didn't know there was an American Sault Ste. It is. It's the second oldest and longest U.S. settlement after Jamestown. There's a little piece of trivia for you, listeners. Second largest Sault Ste. Marie. I went on a historical <laughs> it is the second tour largest. of Nashville, and I didn't realize how old Nashville is. Yeah, it's VO. Yeah, they're all VO old. That's I mean, for, for America. Well, hold on. When I used to be a Chicago <laughs> tour guide, and Europeans would be like, maybe it's old for Americans. I was like, well, our first cultures were nomadic. Zing! <laughs> and how old are you, guy? You know? Yeah, how like, long you been fuck around? off! Uh, <laughs> really good point, though. And then, like, again, so then, it's like... It's like a Western-centric... Totally. Yeah. And this book is super Western-centric. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're really problematic discussions of the indigenous Canadian peoples. Do you think the book is being like, look how foolish this is? Or I do don't... you think the book is like, this is the way it is? I don't... It's a product of its time. It's a product yeah. of its time. I, I wasn't like offended by anything that it said. I was just like, it's 1976. Like, this is unfortunately how these things were talked about. And mm-hmm. I think it's useful to like call it out. But I'm also like, I'm not going to fault it. Also, which is kind of how I feel like sure but like the American Indian movement was like catching on both sides of the north border so like as problematic as the indigenous depictions are in this book they're not absent and like Lucy's there and there's discussions about whose land it was to begin with and how like Carrie originally got the land and how like the land was taken and conquered and like those are very specific terms that this book used to describe how white people move into this area and like that's not on accident. I felt kind of like the same way that like Faulkner talks about the American South. Yeah. Where like there's a million faults there, but like there's a definite view of like empathy. And I always felt like he understood the problems that were there, but was like 
giving you a representation of just like being true to the time that they were discussing. Yeah, yeah. And, and like, there's no way that like you would have some progressive ass people living up in the fucking bayou of Canada. Totally. Like, talking all <laughs> exactly what this is in the 70s. So it's like, yeah. I think it's a very like representative moment in the same way that like in Yakka, whatever county that Faulkner's writing from, like, they're also not going to have nice things to say about people, mm. unfortunately. But I think I, don't know. I think you're right. I think it's a ode of respect via honesty, saying I'm not cool. going to like glamorize you in a way that you're not, and that makes this a very Canadian book. That's respect true. Through honesty, respect through honesty. Canada. Canada. Like, listen, empathy <laughs> through honesty. Yeah, I mean, like that's the like. So the question that Nick raised at the beginning is like, is this the first time that the bear has had sex with a human woman? And like the question is, has he been having sex with Lucy, the a hundred year old toothless indigenous woman? Yeah, and the fact that her grandson comes in like the last scene, we see the bear in a boat with Lucy's grandson because Lucy has asked that the bear be with her in her last moment. Yeah. But at the same time, like I get that with a pet that you haven't had sex with. Like if I could have Peggy Sue the Labrador back with me in my last moments, I would want her there. And you know, God bless that you have a grandson who would go to another island and put the creature in the boat and take it to you. In the boat. Go get my fuck bear. Go get my fuck bear. He has this like interaction with Lucy's grandson. It's like Lucy's grandson's like he's a good boy, right? Right? She's like, yeah, he's a very good boy. Yeah, no. Okay, so like, <laughs> like I feel like everyone understands that this, this, this bears tongue in people. Like, yeah, exactly. Right. Like Homer, yeah. Homer kind of gets it. Yeah. I feel like Homer's son. Oh says something Homer There's like a acknowledges weird dialogue. a sexual awakening within. Mm. And like, and I mean, why is Homer? Why is Homer? So, yeah, Homer's suddenly like, hey, you Lu- seem like, better. Yeah, Lou's like, okay, like she's looking pretty hittable. Yeah, <laughs> Lucy will die happy now that she has the bear back. He said he's a good bear. I guess he is. I wouldn't know myself. She remembered the odd ridge of Homer's upper plate the day she made love to him. Well, goodbye. Shaking his hand. <laughs> Thanks for everything. I didn't make much of a go of the garden. <laughs> you did all right. I just wonder also, how many... Also, I didn't make such a go of the garden. She did not have reproductive sex with the bear. Oh! Oh, God. And the garden did fail. <laughs> I took it to mean that Homer had a cleft palate. No, I took it to mean the ridge of his penis. Oh, I thought she said... He had a cleft penis? I, she says something he, weird he about his penis. She thought about... The him. odd ridge of Homer's upper plate. But here's this thing that I really wanted to get to. So, like, she's leaving and she's saying goodbye and she, she felt tender, serene. She remembered evenings of sitting by the fire with the bear's head in her lap. She remembered the night the stars fell on her body and burned and burned. She remembered guilt and a dream she had where her mother made her write letters of apology to the Indians for having had to do with a bear and she remembered the claw that had healed her guilt. And I was like, fuck. How do you think the claw healed her guilt? Such an interesting question. Like self-flagellation? Partially, like, certainly. By way of... Do you think she was like, the know. bear got something out of this? Because she does talk about the fact that his erection is gone after he claws her. Which about? is a surprise to her. Yeah, she's surprised. But do you think it means the bear was like, being destructive to your body is enough for me, I'm done. Which would be like a very apt commentary on human sexuality as well. Mm-hmm. I almost feel like this book wouldn't work if they actually had sex. It wouldn't. Like, no. They're like, you kind of knew that they wouldn't. Although oral sex is actual sex. 
for all you 13 year olds out there. <laughs> well, true. If we're going to talk about like illnesses and emotional weight. Yeah. Take it serious. Your mom walking in. There's a Whoa. lot. No, not that part. But it is the same. <laughs> your mom walking in. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Almost worse. It's probably. <laughs> That's why. And I said it on Turkey Day Trist and I'll say it again. Do not have sex in your parents' house. Under any circumstances. Even if they're not home. Even if it's a funeral and you've eaten the funeral potatoes. No, you've eaten the funeral potatoes. You've done enough. Mm -hmm. And do you really want to do that after the funeral potatoes? (laughs) Absolutely not. Are you feeling a little bloated? Did you eat them or did you rub them on your face? It's like that that sex scene in Blue is the Warmest Color. No one ever talks about the fact that it comes after they eat so much spaghetti. When I feel overfull, I don't want to feel overfull in other ways. I don't don't want to like double. Stuff. It's still kind of a work. That's true. I do like the workout aspect yeah. of it. Um, Steve Martin's book, Shop Girl, has a sex scene, a really great sex scene in it where they're kind of over full and then they just have oh, sex yeah. in the spoon position. So there's really a gentle. Move. You don't really have to move. It's just like, it's like and that was Steve Martin's really greatest to. gift to American culture. Shop girl, <laughs> certainly not his banjo playing. Should I didn't realize I take. I love it when he plays with Kermit. He also has a fellowship specifically for banjo players. Anyway, stuff I know about Steve Martin. What Steve else do you know Martin about Steve Martin? He didn't become a father until he was sixty-three. He went gray entirely at twenty-three. They found out that a scene in Shop Girl where the older gentleman pays off the young lady student loans was a thing he actually did for a comparatively younger lover than him. I mean, his wife now is like 25 years younger than he is. Which, by the way, don't pay off your student loans. It's just the thing that gets forgiven after 30 years. So oh, we'll see in the post-apocalypse of whatever this hellscape is we're living through. <laughs> My student loans today, I readjusted for income and they were like, you can just pay a zero dollar for the next 12 months. So that's like, cool. Don't worry about it. <laughs> hey, hey, are you okay? Those are on us. <laughs> <laughs> for now. Hey, forget it. Forget it. <laughs> Just like, and then they do, do that thing where they're like, for the next 22 years, you pay $800 a month. All right, let's so, get back on track. How does the bear clawing her back? Yeah, I feel like we were actually like in the middle of something. Do you think when, it's because she recognizes his animalness in that moment? Or do you think it's because it's self-flagellation? Or do you think she thinks the bear gets pleasure from clawing her open? She felt strong and pure is the line at the end of it she felt she did even though it caused her fear and panic yeah Yeah, her transformation like her like out of her chrysalis and the fact that like the bear claws the chrysalis open I honestly don't know what to do with it because like the guilt is so amorphous and like the shame is so amorphous like the reason that she is stuck and chained to her basement is pretty undefined so then like the bear releasing her from that is also like it's not exactly unearned because it felt earned when I read it but like in the looking back it's like I can't untie this knot because I'm like I'm not exactly sure how it works do you know what I think it is I think it is her releasing herself from trying to seek meaning in life Mm. and understanding things as the way they are Mm. because we find her and she's trying to create meaning out of these historical pieces Mm -hmm. and she gets into this house and she's constantly trying to find meaning and value in these objects and the one object that is a real monetary value is the only one she steals the first edition book and even all these notes about a bear that she's in love with 
with, she catalogs and puts away. And she's constantly trying to pursue this goal of making this work Mm -hmm. as an institute. And she's also constantly trying to make this bear a lover. And then in the moment when the bear treats her like an animal, I think she has clarity and she's able to let go of this idea of like a pursuit of meaning. Hmm. I know you love talking about whiff of death. I do. It's Isabel. my faith. Like, how much? How much of that feeling or that sense of fear, particularly someone who I would imagine doesn't feel fear very often, mm-hmm. would be someone who works exclusively in the dark in a basement. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to also take that further up at being like kind of a novel aware of like one foot in the Victorian era mm-hmm. with like mm-hmm. the library and like mm-hmm. that comes up and like the link between like at that point would have been the lived like modern world and the naturalistic world. And what we kind of do with that of like coming back to like a notion of the sublime to like understand our own humanity or like awaken it, I guess. I think what's interesting about the whiff of death here or like the fear is that she feels so much of it, so much unearned fear in this book. She has fear about her job. She has fear about going into the like wilderness of Canada. She has fear about the bear. She has like all of this like really untethered fear and like her relationship to the bear like puts the fear in perspective which is like a weird move. Like that moment that you talked about earlier where she's like, she has like this extremely depressive mood that like seems to come out of nowhere. And she's like, I don't know what I am or what I'm doing or who I am or like why I even matter. I think I don't. And like, I'll just disappear. And like, it's like tacitly suicidal, which is also yoked to this idea of meaning, which is also then yoked to this idea of like purpose. And like, I think all of that is like, she has so much untethered fear and anxiety, truly. And like the bear helps her like catalog and put it away which is weird Mm -hmm. I kind of get it but like I don't like I don't understand the bear is like literal but also metaphor and I'm like oh I also want to think about this are we supposed to understand the bear bear bear, (laughs) the bear as literal or metaphor because I I think there's a part of me that begs to be like the bear is a metaphor but I think this book does so much talking about the piggish eyes and the shit caked on its rump and like even the way its body moves when it's having sex air quotes with her like it demands that I understand the bear as a literal bear I think it definitely pushes that hand and because it's like aware of itself I would argue like almost as a book because it's a book very aware of books you know the the whole whole book is her going through books Mm -hmm. and then she's not going through books she's having sex with a bear so it's like what do we do with it's such a good point this romantic but not just this romantic text like romance deep cuts yeah that she is interrogating and also whenever you pointed out the Victorian thing yeah that pointed out so much to me how much this novel hues to the shape of those Victorian gothics that were a predecessor to romance Mm -hmm. the very dangerous dastardly mysterious hero who sweeps up the heroine who's like a very introverted quiet but then somehow becomes like extroverted and self-assured young lady like I think this book really follows in a lot of ways the pattern of a gothic romance totally from our pre-Kathleen Woodywiss days yeah like the feeling that like the bear is both a facsimile Rochester but also somehow also Bertha yeah (laughs) the bear is both Rochester and Bertha yeah like Antoinette as right those 
studied fan ads. Right. I'm like, I don't know what to do with the bear in that sense. Again, where it's like, it is chained. It is defanged. Yeah. It is less dangerous, but it is a 600 pound animal that she has a real and like smart fear of initially. And like miscalculates. Yeah. I mean, doesn't at one point they're like, I don't want to say wrestling mm-hmm. each other, but mm-hmm. they, they're, they're moving in some kind of way where she like is suddenly like put under the full weight of it or like mm-hmm. even yeah. a partial weight. And she's like, oh, I forgot. This is like a very heavy dangerous thing yeah. right it almost even maybe cries out and i may be making that, that no up, i but think you're right you're right like there's like a physical response to her like realizing again like when it scratches her back that it can hurt her but mm-hmm. the resolution of the novel is she stops understanding the bear as a metaphor and she understands it as a literal bear mm-hmm. you know a and good bear like, leads her to like change like a her fine, life too a fine yeah. bear you know? a fine bear <laughs> It's okay. The type of bear your mom warns you about. The type of bear that Lucy wants to see when she dies. Mm. (laughs) But no one says that about like the bad boy they dated. They're never like, he was okay. Which is how she like comes to understand the bear. I don't know. You get a sense that like when Lou leaves the Carrie estate, like she's not the same person. No. She's not. She's gone through like a hardened transformation. She has indeed. She has. Bone in. B- a bone in transformation. <laughs> she's never penetrated by the bear. She's not. For the record. Uh, she's it. penetrated soul deep. Yeah. It's just not, you know, P and V. Although the bear's tongue does penetrate her. Yeah, multiple that times. Happens. That makes sense though because bears have the clitoris on the inside. I think he's so just like, like knows what's up. tickling her soul with his tongue or something because she has changed. Like she's going to go back and give her two weeks notice to the stupid dick that she's been having Wednesday sex with. She's yeah. gonna get a new job. She's Wednesday sex is a good title for something. It is a really good Wednesday title. It's like sex. Tuesday with Maury's, Wen- but Wednesday sex. Wednesday sex. <laughs> Tuesdays with Maury's. Wednesday sex. Obligatory. It's missionary. It's <laughs> it was on the desk. I know. It was, but not I mean, on the, not on the good maps. <laughs> not, I love that she makes that detail. She's like, she's like on I. Lesser maps. She's like, I thought I was a badass because I was having sex on the desk, but I always moved the valuable maps. Can't even fuck and the good that maps. was a super visceral moment for me, where I was like, oh fuck, yeah. You don't value yourself. Yeah. Yeah, you're like this insignificant bullshit. You are you... the person who's like, I would move the valuable maps before I had sex with them. Like this object fetishism. When you're the that one. Mark told us about. Mark's warned us about it. This book is so complicated. This book was actually very smart. Yeah. Which I like. This book is one of my favorite books I've ever read. Yeah. I liked it a ton. I'm really glad that y'all saved it for me. We did. (laughs) I I would never have otherwise read it. And I like told some people at work, I was like, yeah, I got to read this book for the podcast I'm a part of. And (laughs) it's about a woman involved with a bear. And it's like, it is, but it's it's not in a lot of ways. But I don't know 100% what it is about then if it's not about that. like I, I just, I don't know if we can know. I think we're trying and I think we're doing a good job. But we're doing an excellent job, doing a really good job. But like, there's a lot. And I wonder if we would have a different take on it if we were Canadian. And I wonder that what that would lend. I do want to hear I what. I think our Canadian listeners should tell us. Yeah. I think our Canadian yeah. listeners should tell feel? us. I mean, I Here's... can tell you how I feel about In Cold Blood, but it feels very like hollow. Because yeah. like, it all comes down to like, some New Yorker came and he was pretty okay. Is In Cold Blood an American story? I, I have, that's a really good question. I have. 
yes. several bear anecdotes. I grew up in the Northwoods and like not very far from where this book takes place. I know where Nebish Island is. We had a lockdown drill in fifth grade and like we thought there was an active shooter on campus and it was really just a bear on the playground. <laughs> they sounded the lockdown <laughs> drill. It was active and it was also active in the loosest sense of the word. <laughs> it wasn't a shooter. It was a bear. Have you ever seen a bear though? They're like very... They're lumbering. I, mean, I don't want to meet a bear, but they're like casual critters. Yeah, they're seductive strangers. I did not say that. <laughs> I, I was thinking they're like hanging out. Yeah, they're, they're like, they're like loose. They keep it loose. Shaking the world up. No, they're just doing their thing. But like, Same. I don't know that like my opinion as a Northwoods person has changed by this. I'm not Canadian though, so like I can't claim that. But as a Northwoodser. As a Northwoodser who spent a lot of time, like all of the stuff about like this seasonality of how the summer trains transitions from like the how first it snows in May how it snows in May and then when the black flies come and how long the oh, black flies yeah. stay like yes. all of that hit perfectly I knew exactly what was happening like the talk about the mosquitoes and how she has to wear cheesecloth because they're so thick sit around her face yeah and it's like a weird amorphous angel attached to her all of those descriptions were like really cogent and like hit home for me and like summers that I experienced there's also a anecdote from another Canadian novel that I love called Mrs. Mike about a Mountie. And there's a woman who gets a low. dirty Mountie. <laughs> a Mountie that's actually a bear. He's not a bear. There are bears in that book, though. And beavers. But <laughs> <laughs> beavers of all type. But like a woman gets lost on the trail and she's only been gone for 24 hours. And Mrs. Mike, Catherine Mary is like, oh, we should go look for her. And Mike is like, she's already dead. And he's like, it's 24 hours. She hasn't even run out of water. And he's like, the mosquitoes would have killed her by now. And I was like, ooh. People always forget all the skeeters in Canada because we're only thinking about the skeeters in Florida. And that is American colonialism in the modern day. Sure is. Yeah, I don't know. Canadian listeners. Canadian listeners. And I think about this a lot and the idea of America as a colonial power, but in a different way without like the same kind of boundaries. I'm always interested in the question of like, do you feel like you're an American colony? And is it because of our television programming? <laughs> I'm I'm serious though. It's a really good question. I think about like the Canadian programming that I've like seen over time. There's some good stuff. It blew my mind. I was in Kilkenny in Ireland and I'd be like, I'm from Kansas. And they'd be like, oh, you guys don't have like, you're legally not able to teach evolution in your classrooms. And I'm like, how do these people know this? <laughs> these are much smarter than we are. I don't think they're smarter than us. I think they're obsessed with us. And I think it goes back to the fact that we are the cultural exporter du jour. We are so good at making TV and, and movies. movies. Of course they want to know about us and they want to feel close to us because they already feel like they identify with us. They let us into their homes every single week. And so they're like fascinated by us. <laughs> they're just like obsessed know, with like, us. I don't think they're smarter than us at all. I think they're just always looking at us through their screens. Do you think it's because they know more about us than we know about them? Yeah, so exactly. Well, seem- but they don't actually know more about us because we know that America is this enormous country with a great depth and breadth that is not represented on television, but they think they know us because they see us constantly. They're like, how many guns do you own? How many times have you been to Disney? Yeah, exactly. Do you know Britney Spears? Like, they think they know us. I remember someone in Ireland being like, I've got a really long drive. And I was like, how long is it? And he was like, four hours. And I was like, oh, that's not bad. It's like a good day day. trip. You can still like go to the water park after that. 
that. But that's like relative. That's not exactly, exactly. It's relative. But they don't have like a grasp of the depth and breadth of sea to shining sea. Like are super problematic. The and United they, States and they always, is vast. They're always like Americans don't have passports, and it's like yeah, because we're fifty different countries that you don't need a passport for. Well, at least like nine. I don't know. Chicago feels like a different country from New Orleans. Feels like a different country from Kansas City. A different country from St. Louis. Sure, but Kansas City and St. Louis don't feel like different countries necessarily than like, certainly like the quad cities or Omaha. People never talk about how like weird St. Louis and Salt Lake City are because they are the most problematic version of weird. They're like, Kansas City and St. Louis are the same. And it's like, not really. (laughs) Also, Salt Lake City is decidedly weirder than St. Louis. Why Salt Lake City is weird? What makes Kansas City weird? St. Louis. St. Louis Louis weird. St. Louis is racially divided in a way that is palpable and tactile. Oh, that's where... Ferguson. Yeah, Ferguson. I forgot that was Mm -hmm. in St. Louis. But like, you would think, like, you hear about Ferguson and you're like, that could happen anywhere in America, which is true. But when you're in St. Louis, you feel like it should have been happening every minute of every day. And it probably did. Because it was. And like, that's the thing. Like, you know, Ferguson is like 17 minutes from downtown St. Louis. And then like, also then there's East St. Louis, which is across the river. Like, a question in my previous life, they were like, you should know the difference differences between St. Louis high schools because they are cogent differences. There are a dozen different high schools in St. Louis and they are all socially, racially, racially class divided. It's incredible. There are BuzzFeed quizzes that are like, which St. Louis high school should you have gone to? Because it is so compartmentalized. When I debated, it is like like Hogwarts, Hogwarts, but worse because like Slytherin isn't the worst that you can be like. Slytherin's like Hufflepuff in this scenario. Yeah. Like when we debated these motherfuckers, like like, five different Slytherins. Yeah. And they're wearing lefty Slytherin. There's a right leaning Mm. Slytherin. There's a girls only Slytherin. There's a boys only Slytherin. (laughs) They're really wearing three-piece suits to high school debate competitions and like had six cases for briefs and had like gold pocket watches and like One, all of their all names ended in threes and fours. Ball. Yeah, oh, no. that kind of stuff. St. Louis is a weird like, throwback. themselves as like old school, like antebellum South. Yeah, but which is weird because it's not the antebellum. But then there's also yeah. like, but then there's like two high schools that are like, we don't even have walls between classrooms because everyone learns everything at once. Except y'all never learned that this is how we're not supposed to live. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all never learned how to desegregate. Be segregated. Yeah. Uh, mm. Think of like every type of weird cultural racial problem America has. Distill it down. It is represented by a high school in St. Louis. It's true. The neighborhood like, segregation even the subtly is problematic. Your fave is problematics are represented by high schools in St. Louis. Also by the startup culture in that city. All right. Bear, what was your sexiest part? Nick, you start. What was your sexiest part? I felt like when she first discovers one of Carrie's notes about the bear and it's like the bone and penis tongue folding vertically, whatever. It was almost like she found like a takeout menu of like what's about to come. And I thought that that was interesting because like, again, we were talking like knowing what this book is about frames everything from the second you start mm. reading it. Once you... Which is why that sexy cover in the marketing like a Harlequin was necessary. Yeah. Because like, why else would you pick it up at this point if you like didn't know of its like Canadian literary accolades and instead yeah. you were like, I want to watch this lady get dicked down by a bear. bear. So then the first 
time you like are learning <laughs> despair and you're starting to like conceptualize it is like a schematic of its sexual capacity. It's like this is what its downstairs looks like. Here's what it can do. And I thought that was like a weird like a stage setting in a way that felt kind of cold, but would have probably really titillated the mind of like a, a librarian would have titillated like, the mind of a librarian did titillate the mind of this podcast producer <laughs> i used to work in the engineering library at the university of washington seattle yeah you were to the librarian <laughs> student assistant i didn't know that about you you worked at the engineering I, I library did. I circulation and i would shelf read and shelve Check people out. The best library to work in. Like books. Yeah, you would. You put those books back on those shelves. You check those books out. I too worked in circulation. Sexiest part for me was when she got her back licked when she got out of swimming, and I like gasped and shut the book. It's been a long time since I've been there. Yeah. uh, I blushed. I blushed a lot in this book. I also like my eyebrows were like literally glued to like the top of my forehead. I was like, what is happening? Yeah. Whenever the bear licked her back, I would say that was, it was the sexiest part of this book. The sexiest part for me is like all of her long meditations on the bear's hair once he's clean and like having her hands sink into all of his fur and like sitting by the fire. Yeah, and like just touching the bear and like the different kinds of hair and like this is such a tactile book. I don't know. And like a lot of ways it didn't feel like it was taking place in the summer. It felt like it was taking place in the winter because she always has a fire going. She's always next to a bear. She's always stripping down to like nothing and then like lying on the bear. She has this like perfect seasonality where it's like summertime during the day and wintertime at night. Yes, exactly Mm -hmm. that. Yes. And she's indulging and all yep. of the most like seasonal pieces of this. For sure. Indulging is the right word. And that's like, just like watching her hand disappear into Bear, who is maybe magic and maybe not, was like one of those moments where it's like, I don't know what's about to happen, but I like what's happening right now. And it's, it's sexy. It did kind of feel like she could just walk off into a wardrobe at some point and be a Narnia. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. Like anything could happen. Just like kind of otherworldly. Yeah. I've never. Being like kind of boring. I at the same time. You like know? very prosaic. Like nothing really happened, which was also kind of great about it. Mm-hmm. I love that it was just kind of just like mundane. Mm-hmm. I've never been that alone. Mm. and Not for that long. I think like Mm-mm. most books make me feel like I don't want to be that alone. And this book made me feel like being that alone is the tits. Yeah, like I want to spend a season with myself, a library, a weirdly shaped house, and potentially a bear. Like mm-hmm. a task that you have months to complete. Yeah, that but, you have to but, stretch out, that you only have to do like four which, hours a day. Yeah. Which, by the know, way... Really takes, yeah. She knew from the get-go, she was like, this isn't going to take me that long. Yeah. I'm going to milk it. Yeah. Because I got a sexy pet. I got a sexy pet. <laughs> I don't like, like the director. <laughs> I like what's happening uh, here. Yeah. There's a new me on the other side of this. Yeah, mm. yeah. Yeah, exactly. She yeah. went there immediately and was like, I'm changing my life. I'm reborn. What was the weirdest part of Bear? Barring the sex with a bear part. Obviously. What was the weirdest part of Bear? This is page 36. This is actually pretty early. She hasn't had sex with Bear yet. Bear, she whispered, who and what are you? Bear did not reply, but turned its head toward her with a look of infinite weariness and closed its eyes. She sat for a long time smoking, drinking coffee, staring at it, taking some nephews to a bad movie about bears once. That was all. An unprepossessing creature, this bear, she decided. Not at all menacing, not a creature of the wild, but a middle-aged woman defeated to the point of being daft with sad 
sat night after night waiting for her husband for so long that time had ceased to exist and there was only waiting. I can manage him, she decided, because all such are manageable. That was my weirdest part. I wrote yowza in the margins. The like internal misogynation that's happening there. And then she just like projects onto Barry. Like there are multiple instances where she projects like a kind of like broken femininity onto Bear that like felt at once like eviscerating, but also like really disjointed. And like that was one of the first moments where I was like, what the fuck are you comparing like a sad housewife to like sad bear? I got a set of cute post-its Great. from my mother-in-law mm. and it has brought me back to a point that I really wanted to talk about. And I feel like the weirdest part of the book, maybe this isn't the weirdest part of the book, but I do think that like 1970s-ism-ness of it is pretty strange for us now. She picked a life of Bo Brummel out of the bookcases. She's mm. reviewing that book. The book had all the worst characteristics of post-Victorian biography. It was pompous and speculative, badly researched, unindexed. (laughs) The world has improved in a way, she thought, and in her head, a whirl of scholars whizzed from fact to fact, all of them weeding and verifying the life of the dandy who invented the necktie and became so obsessed with his pride, he insulted the king. The idea that the world has improved in the way that we're better at writing biographies and confirming them was so dark to me. (laughs) That it was like, the world's improved since then. We're better at autobiography verification now. Was like kind of the vibe of her throughout the text. Yeah. Which is weird when you worship the past and you know it's lies. And then you're oh so obsessed with like wanting it to have meaning, but you know it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And like, but I, then I also like love that phrase, like so obsessed with his own pride that he insulted a king. It was also kind of great because all that shit's fake too. Yeah. Know? Like there's nothing about a bloodline that makes it better, you know? Yeah. Just- the brokenness of everything mm. is revealed in that phrase. That's not the weirdest part because it kind of sets you up for the ending where she's like, everything is chaos. Yeah. I fucked a bear. Yeah, <laughs> I'm getting a new job and I'm getting off the island. It like, it like might honestly be the most like nihilistic book Deuces. I've ever read. Not nihilistic because that sounds negative. But it it's, is. But it's it is. nihilistic it's like, in that like a rain's going to come down yeah. and wash away all this scum or like me as very fucking cold in Chicago right now. Perfect time to read a Canadian text. It's true. But there is something that feels good about the cold. Like, it feels like nothing, like, everything clean in it, you know? Mm-hmm. That I think... Nothing can live in it. Yeah. Yeah, like, she's swarmed by insects, and then they're gone, and she's fucked a bear. And that's the kicker, though, is she fucked a bear. <laughs> she fucked a bear. She fucked a bear. <laughs> After Labor Day, the mosquitoes and the because mosquitoes are gone. Because is fucking. Yeah, also, she fucked a bear. She had sex with a bear. Mm-hmm. A bear gave her many orgasms. She maybe gave him one. It's unclear. She let him off the chain. And like, again, is this a question of like, is bear metaphorical? How literal is bear? Because like, if we're taking it metaphorically, letting him off the chain is like potentially like the first act of enjoyment that he's getting out of his life in a long time. Yeah, yeah that's so like, true. He got to like wash his butthole, which is like but pretty it, cool. But I think like all of those aspects she of She kills that fish for him. Are yeah, he gets different. 
She like, hunts for him. She hunts for him. She hunts for she him. She hunts for him. Damn. That's right. That's kind of sexy. It is. That might be that the sexiest is, part. That's actually Just a really good she, part like, when she, she kills like, that fish. that big fish. Yeah. And she's like, this is the kind of fish Homer would tell his friends about. And she yeah. just yeah. gives it to Bear. Yeah. Oh, that is all, sexy. Like, yeah. Bloodied and shit. Yeah. She's like yeah. kind of grossed out by it, but she also digs it. And she's yeah. like, oh, what kind of scales this thing has. Yeah. Are they going to hurt me if I. Unreal. God, this book is so weird because like the moment she catches the fish and it's a pike so it's like ugly and it's got like you know it's yeah. jutting jaws yeah. and it's like it, it is a hideous fish pikes are gross fish and they're good eating though it's good eating it's good eating and she has that moment where she like dumps it in the sink and she like hasn't like fucking killed it yet so it's like just gasping and she's like I've gasping done for water gasping for water for life and uh. she's like and she's like I've done a bad thing yeah I'm gonna feed you to my bear yeah I'm gonna feed you to my <laughs> yeah that's right I'm gonna feed I recently fried a whole fish and whenever you put the fish in the hot oil, its whole body expands like it's breathing in and it's very disturbing. Wow, I didn't. They are delicious. Yeah. I love this book. This book is the best book. I think I think my weirdest part was Mm -hmm. all of her her weird depressive bouts. And I was wondering if you thought, because we do know that she's often drinking when she's alone. And to me, those moments of hers, and I counted again two. I wonder if they were like almost hangover manifestations. I've noticed that as I've gotten older, when I drink a lot, I feel like horribly anxious and like shameful and like terrible in a way that is not physical. Like my body is fine. My brain is what is like recoiling in horror I think recoil is a good way of talking about that because that's what it feels like it feels like a recoil and not that it like took alcohol for her to reach that point but that's what I was like this feels like a hangover but like she also seems like someone who maybe experiences depression like often and like languishes in it but the way those moments were like so casually like entered into and then exited was also weird there was no like reflection no real like event that caused it and no real engagement with like how that like colored the rest of her experience and I think like it read as like the humdrum of the novel like people experience bouts of depression that they can't categorize or anticipate and like so much of this book feels like that where it's like this is the thing women have terrible lives and their husbands cheat on them a la Homer and like you know sometimes you have sex with a bear and sometimes you think you know placid suicidal thoughts about yourself like that's the thing that kind of felt the truest to me because you know whenever I have bouts with depression I have these exact same things where I'm like, okay, now I go to work. <laughs> like, it's all yeah. meaningless. Nothing matters. It's over. It's pointless. And I'm still doing it because I'm worried. How would my cat deal? Gotta keep doing it. Yeah. yeah. And I think this novel perfectly captures that. It was weird reading it. Sometimes I was like, God, this is so 1976. And other times I was like, God, this is such the experience of being a human in 2019. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, this I'm like, all the time. This weird doubling of the time frame. Yeah. Where I was like, but you feel both like, antiquated and like already yeah. like occurring. Like yeah. you felt present at the same time. Yes. yes. It you feel really wild. you it was so pulled into the presence of this novel. Yes. Sometimes you're reading it and you're like, this is so 1976. And then sometimes you're reading it and you're like, this is so 1976. Like, I think there was this connection with the like sweatiness of being tactile. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas I think of like millennial pink or like the things that make up millennialness, that like textures and colors and sensations that feel almost 
sterile. Like I think about Poppy, the android, Mm -hmm. right? There are things from that era, three chests, nipples sticking out, sweaty bodies. Like pants over your belly button. (laughs) Pants over your belly button, belly button over your pants. Should should it apply? (laughs) Avocado green as opposed to like avocado toast. (laughs) (laughs) We put it on on fucking refrigerators. Kiss my ass. Bread at Trader Joe's. We toasted it up. It tastes so delicious. Yeah, like this idea of like a real sweaty naturalism that is not metaphor, Mm -mm. that is not aesthetic, Mm -mm. that is not grammable. That felt so good for sure like bodily like yeah it felt so it was like, like real like everything was like yeah. felt you know like yeah. like rarely when you're reading a work of fiction do you like see or experience or read about your protagonist slash narrator like urinating and defecating yeah. alone, like yeah. never to be like, like we're friends now yeah <laughs> like it was something like i was like about like reading octavia butler was how she described hunger mm. and the way the body like needs things like thirst and like other people and like she had a way of describing hunger that I felt like this book was very aware of and And I think or the way like a Foucaultian reading of the world says like the Victorians which I think this novel you could argue is very Victorian are obsessed with the body you know and like maintaining it and controlling it controlling it particularly physical like there is no connection between the mental and the physical or the emotional like it's very like physical whereas I think this book also leans on the physical in a way because you do you feel like I didn't grow up in the North Country but I'm like yeah mosquitoes all the time everywhere absolutely the black flies that take peace out yeah and they do when you oh my god they're rough something no bigger than yeah yeah the emotional understanding of this text Mm -hmm. is so physical in a way that I think the 70s kind of where like the failure of the 60s led to like this like let's coke it up and sweat it out you know it's <laughs> a good because it was like okay let's smoke a bunch of pot and take a bunch of acid like between and like, free it's all love psychedelic and in the brain yeah and now we're like, mm, no, no let's get let's get real, real hopped up on some shit and go balls to the walls physical yeah, yeah, let's yeah, yeah, yeah. go let's grind our teeth on purpose mm-hmm. but like this thing about like between free love and hiv aids epidemic is this like sticky, sensorial, physical way of understanding our world. It's all of those things and the extension to non-human sentience, non-human relations is like a pretty easy walk down the street from that like sensorial, corporeal, sweaty move. Because like how different is a bear when it stands on its hind legs? Non-human sentience is a bow's wheelhouse. Totally. How do you feel about non-human sentience? So like we're believing sexual as like a thing or like an energy like outside of things that have it. Yeah. But also like like sexuality is like an energy that exists outside of procreation. Right. But also then like an intelligence or sociality that like exists outside of how like humans consider community. Like other creatures, non-human creatures have a sense of self, have a sense of community, have a sense of sexuality. There's not something that has sexuality shares the same energy. No, No. it's not necessarily, but definitely the 70s thought that. That I'm also thinking like in terms of this book, like I feel like sexuality 
sexuality is just a thing that's like you can tap into yeah. and also perhaps this I talk about HIV AIDS is like the satanic panic as a result of HIV AIDS a manifestation of like you can die from sex totally although you could always die from sex like syphilis and gonorrhea and like people just, use those things this like, is different in 1976 die from syphilis and gonorrhea in the 70s you no just got a shot and people are like gee whiz can't believe you got syphilis <laughs> you dummy yeah. do you feel like the period that you're talking about is like after a time when like sex became free and mm. before it became dangerous yes, yes. so it, it with like, this beautiful yeah. window we're yeah t- we're talking like maybe 12 years yep. yeah like 69 like to 81 yeah that's what I was kind of thinking where most of that feminist sci-fi that we read came yeah. from yep. that was talking about like maybe we shouldn't restrict kids when they masturbate it type like, stuff like, maybe we should have sex with orca whales yeah when they tried yeah. to have sex with dolphins yeah this book it fits very particularly into that post 69 free love pre 1981 AIDS HIV panic also like it's really important to note especially in terms of like feminist fiction this also fits like deeply into the equal rights amendment and like the way that like women are now becoming not only visible but actively agitating for constitutional change we see our heroine existing in a world fully satisfied fully accommodated even sexually without men in the beginning of the novel they talk about her masturbating Mm -hmm. and this is obviously different and I think it's because the 70s really understood sex and companionship like I grew up in a household raised by a child of the 70s and whenever talking about sex we could only use the term sex or making love (laughs) and one time my brother was like would it be cool with you if in Grand Theft Auto they had sex but they only referred to it as making love and my mom was like well (laughs) but this idea of like making love the phrase lovers became a thing in the 70s totes do you feel that while Lou is on the island with Bear is it a feminist sexual utopia oh that's a good question that is a good question I would say it becomes that by the end but like her weird interaction with Homer where like he has that pretty aggressive come on that she has to like not only shut down but then like emotionally soothe Mm -hmm. and she also internalizes it being like you always push things too far it's just like when that bear licked your cunt exactly it's like your tits are out you're wearing the silk dress like there's a moment of like what were you wearing what were you drinking how many drinks did you have you invited him here to carry heavy things yeah like what was he supposed to think (laughs) you dumb dumb and like this book again like of 1976 like they're beginning to think about consent and call it by its name it's not like any of these ideas are new or we're circulating for like the first time like that's silly but like to call the thing by its name where it's like I am not an object and the idea that you felt invited to me when I didn't invite you isn't the thing that we're doing and like that she has to defend herself or that she like has this weird like projection that bears this like leftover housewife and like all of that stuff is like such a work through of like all the things that the feminist movement is trying to pull forward so like when you said it's nihilistic but it's like positive it's like not as sad as nihilism that's the part of it that isn't sad that's the part of it where it's like the feminist tradition of like moving us forward it's like we're almost there we're just if we just get that equal rights amendment if we just get Murphy Brown on the air if we just (laughs) whatever you know and like this book feels like that it was very close yeah Yeah. it's very second wave welcome to Morgan's return to the second wave the third wave all it got us was more pornography on the internet (laughs) R.I.P. Tumblr R.I.P. Tumblr pour one out where am I gonna find all my feminist bush porn gonna have to make your own (laughs) 
<laughs> Listen, you guys Listen, know I'm listeners. aggressively pro-push. To the point where I will walk in and punch the Russian waxing you in the head. What? <laughs> the Russians are famously the ones waxing us. Certainly in the oh media that I consume. It's because they're faster in the pool that way. Sleek fucking otter in the water. <laughs> or a dolphin. Fucking dumb. Otters are covered in fur. It's like matted flat like skin. It is exactly. true. Exactly. Yeah. That's how we should buoyant. all aspire to be. It's erratic and Don't tell me about your pubic hair on the air. That's not the hair that you're Swimming with an otter. <laughs> I'll have you talk know my other hair, the normal kind <laughs> that we can talk about without oh, being weird. Normal. Okay. Totally fine, normal hair. Health <laughs> hair is totally fine and normal, except if it's growing out of your ears, because then I have objections. The ear hair just—I feel just got to be crowded. <sighs> Like, how can you hear? Dampens the fidelity. I feel like bear is a text that aspires to be Victorian and emphasizes its own moment in the process because mm. the 70s are so much a foil to the Victorian era. As like a backlash to the 60s, kind of. But also like, yeah. like still kind of feeling it out. But I would say like it, an inheritor but, but rather than a backlash. It can't backtrack, you yeah. know? Yeah, there's the no letting that did. Pandora. Although I will say, I do want to point this out. People who think about the 60s as a time of sexual revolution. It was a time of sexual revolution for one specific group of people. White, straight men. White people, yeah. yeah. White people for sure. And not white women, because we were all just turned into Jane Fondas. Barbarella. Yeah, Barbarellas. We're like, oh, I come instantly. Great, right? Instead of before when I didn't come at all, now I come without you even trying. Jane Fonda's an interesting question about both like that move from the 60s and 70s, because like there's Barbarella in like 67, 68. And then she has Coming Home with John Voight. And And she has a very important sex scene. Clute. Right? she has like that whole thing where she doesn't come right away because she's never come before with Bruce. What's his name? You should listen to You Must Remember This, a podcast that goes deep in depth into this movement in Jane Fonda's life. God. And career. Boy, I watched She does Jane and Jane. She does Jane Fonda and Jane Seberg, Parallel Lives. Jane Seberg was deeply involved with the Black Panther Party, which I didn't realize. That's cool. Yeah, you learn all about it and You Must Remember This a podcast that certainly doesn't need our encouragement. (laughs) They could encourage us. Okay. Is it a womance or a nomance? Are you asking me? Yeah. Yeah. Think a womance? I want to, yeah. I'm going to go with a womance. It's hard. It's hard to say because I think it's a womance. I think everyone should read this book. I do want to say though, when I told Claire that I was reading this book and what it was about, her first reaction was, what do we do about the issue of consent about Mm -hmm. the bear? She was really concerned about like how a bear consents. Keep in mind, this is a fictional bear. It's a fictional bear, not a real Could be magical. Potential magical bear. Isabeau, do you think this is a magical bear? I'm not convinced that this isn't the bear that Lucy was indeed having a sexual and emotionally fulfilling relationship with 65 years ago. Even though we know from the book, bear's lifespan is 35 years. Right. It explicitly told us at one point. Which it I did. feel was a, maybe a misdirection. If Red it was in fact herring. A magical bear. 
Yes. Like, I actually don't know how to read Bear because, like, in so many ways, like, the way in which Lou describes it as, like, a timeless creature, a creature out of time, a creature that, like, has, like, this depth of wisdom, like, as broad as the stars and as deep as the ocean. And it's like, I don't know how to read Bear as not magical, especially since it erases her guilt with its claws. Like, I honestly don't know. I feel like this is the Bear that Lucy had a consensual sexual relationship when she was younger. And now that she's 100 and toothless and dying. She wants to be with the lover that was most important to her. I think that's the story that Lou tells herself. I think the book wants us to understand the bear as a literal bear. I think the book falls apart if it's a magical bear. Because if it's a magical bear, then all this shit about discovering yourself and clarity and your position in the universe falls apart. What if there is no bear? But I think there has to be a bear. I think you have to be like, holy shit, I had sex with a bear. You know, like I think you have to have that moment for this book to work. But like, what do we do with the fact that having Lou as our heroine and that all her job is, is to prescribe meaning to things. Mm -hmm. It almost doesn't matter if it's a magical bear or a real bear. It just really matters what Lou feels about it. And if Lou feels like it's real, but if we perceive it as magical, it's almost like a weird like double blind. Like it doesn't really matter if it's magical or not. It matters what Lou feels. And (laughs) it's kind of both. I kind of want to go with it's both. It's both to Lou. Yeah. And like, it's almost both to us too. Cause like, I think there's evidence to there being, um, if it goes both, it can kind of satisfy kind of a duality. It says everything about this podcast that Isabeau's like, it's a magic bear. And I'm like, it is not a magic bear. <laughs> she had sex with a straight up bear. <laughs> I'd like, don't disagree. She deaf had sex with a bear, whether or not the bear is a hundred or like 34. I don't honestly think yeah. matters like other than like the weird Lucy tie-in, but yeah, like- the weird Lucy tie-in matters a lot because it means like it's a magic bear. Like <clears throat> if it's capable of living forever, what else is it capable of? Consent? Yeah, <laughs> maybe. And that matters a lot. Which I think if it's a magic bear, I think it solves the consent. The, the issue <gasps> if it's consent. a magic bear, but it But maybe consent. the issue of consent is resolved from the fact that she like tried to coat herself in honey and the bear was like, no, thank Come you. On, honey. I want you without the honey. You're trying too hard. You're trying too hard. You try hard. That's what the honey scene has to do. It has to be oh, like the bear man. is making a complex, conscionable sexual choice. Not only does the bear turn away from the honey it walks down the stairs back into its shed it's like no thank you we'll try again when you're not trying so hard keep yeah. those baryotypes <laughs> to your <laughs> goddamn self out of here <laughs> Yeah, I don't even That's know. That's a really good point. But I think like this conversation has led me to understand something about myself, which is I'm trying to understand what the author wanted too much. And I'm not willing to just like let myself go to what I felt when I read this book. This is a book almost entirely about a sensorial feeling and yeah. B emotional feeling. And like you just kind of got to like swim in those waters. And I did. I like felt it sensorially. I got in that 1970s avocado colored fridge stank. (laughs) (laughs) That shag carpeting, fucking blowout feathered, dreamy hair, disco, it's raining, man. Water. It's a beanbag chair. (laughs) Stank. Like, I got Mm. into that, but then I'm at the same time, I'm like, what does it mean? What does she want us to feel? What is she trying to make me feel? And I think maybe... Mary and 
Engel is one of the true geniuses who is willing to allow readers, and not only allow readers, but give readers the emotional space. And I think she gave us the exact right parameters. Like we know what we're supposed to be exploring, like our gender relationships, our sexual parody ideas, the relationship between human and animal, which leans into all of those ideas. And also the idea of like ourselves and finding a self. She gave us like the perfect bumpers to like wallow in a ball pit. And the fact that I'm like, what does Marion Engel think? <laughs> is like kind of breaking it. Like who put the balls here? Why are they red, blue, yellow, green? As you're talking about that, I'm like, all I can hear in my head right now is Baloo from the Jungle Book singing Bare Necessities. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, it'd be such a different book if this was Baloo. (laughs) But I... The idea of consent comes up a lot in Romancelandia. All the time. Not in any like actual way. I think we're going to come up against it. Gender parity. So sex between a man and a woman can never truly be consensual. It is all rape. Is Bear a romance novel? Based on its broadest terms of the romance genre. Define the broadest terms. Hero and heroine. Mm -hmm. Overcoming an obstacle and have a happily ever after. Yeah. This one, Bear and our heroine Lou do not end up together, but they both both potentially have happily ever afters and like them parting ways doesn't feel like a tragedy mm. but it doesn't satisfy the typical version novel. of an HEA but it can't you can't marry a bear the relationship between these two is central to every move that happens from the moment they meet forward yep and that to me makes it much more a romance novel than some of the other books we've read sure but ultimately it's like her transformation I'm not convinced that the bear transforms at all. I mean, like he gets cleaner and like maybe a little more confident and like gets to be off the leash and live Mm -hmm. a less sad life. But like, I'm not sure that like the bear is He can never grow back those teeth. Yeah. The bear isn't like internally changing. But I mean, the fact that the bear doesn't have his incisors Mm -hmm. tells me that he's a broken hero. Oh, yeah. As they all must be. As are we all. Yes, Nick, you are. Look at you in your Fair Isles sweater. No, but does, like, Lou learning how to love herself again allow it to count as a romance novel? Yeah, because, right, the central thing is her own own personal growth, which I've argued makes it not a romance novel. But, like, the changes happen because of and in relation to this central physical love character, masculine energy. male, but other romantic half. Yeah, an energy completely illusory sure I would argue what was your question Nick it seems like the narratives always pivot around the heroine which is almost maybe like a trite thing to say but like Mm. the events of Bear happen to Lou you know I mean it's a work assignment you know wow I mean yeah you could say that she chooses to go on it but it's her job that's just the initial setup though but like the way in which then she interacts with her environment and the work itself and like drawing it out and like dealing with Bear who she didn't know was there like I think in that way like that actually feels like a pretty typical romance where like Mm -hmm. the setup of the thing oh you think you're going to be alone on an island turns out you have this whole other thing and it turns out to be a masculine energy that you're going to have to deal with that's a romance novel her choices like develop um, almost apropos of nothing though like she makes these decisions it's kind of like I'm going to continue to stay I'm going to kind of languish in my duties and there's a motive so that was weird she decides to linger without like saying why and like we know why because she's going to fuck this bear but like she 
doesn't say that, nor does she really know it. There's a decided lack of internality. Which is, I thought was so weird, is like, we only really know Lou when she's in crisis. Yeah. Which I thought was really wild. Like, but maybe, is, I, I think why those moments like struck me so, yes. so profoundly is because like, that's when we felt like, I felt like I knew her. Other yep. than like having kind of distant, um, detached, yeah, like vantage point of mm-hmm. her like relationships and stuff. I would say always already in crisis is a hallmark of a romantic heroine. Okay. I think about our archetypes, Jane Eyre, Elizabeth Bennet, always already in crisis. Like the crisis is womanhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The crisis is womanhood. Like, I think there's something that was problematized in that conversation that is certainly a problem for me socially, but is in fact central to the romance genre. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that in the romance genre, a woman's growth must hinge on a romantic partner's influence in their life or a man's growth must hinge on a romantic partner's influence in their life. And I think maybe Bear is like a relief. Like we don't see the human side of the hero. We see this animalistic and it brings everything about a romantic text into vivid relief, which is the fact that the heroine in order to work as a romantic heroine must always already be broken. Mm-hmm. must continue to be broken mm-hmm. and then through sex or some idea of sex be resolved but it's still like a physical pro- fulfillment leads to emotional and like other kinds of But it's of not self-fulfillment. Yeah. It's it's through the physical intervention of an other. I think it's interesting that like a physical intervention happens in this book as a way of like awakening self like a rebirth or like a transformation or even potentially an evolution which again doesn't feel out outside of like the parameters of what romance is talking about like when love awakens you or like when a, like a cold fish heroine comes into her sexuality and then like also then understands her emotions or love or like whatever that is like but to understand her as a cold fish in the beginning is even kind of like in bear we can understand her as having misguided goals and misguided focuses and totally being unfulfilled unfulfilled but like cold fish heroine we're gonna get into with our next text We are. And I think that's different than what's happening here. It is. But I think like the thing that's hard about categorizing Bear and like why the idea that someone marketed it as Harlequin-esque feels sort of like a lie to like sell books is because like Bear is and isn't, right? Like there's so much about Bear that is like truly outside of romance and like much more in the genre of like feminist speculative fiction. But (laughs) it does hewn to genre conventions in a very particular way that also make it straddle romance ever so just. I would say maybe when you think about Bear, if you read Bear yourself. Which you should. Maybe put aside the idea of it like being both is and isn't and say it needs to be this or not. And like hold yourself to that stricture because you are talking about genre fiction and genre fiction is stricture. And hold yourself to that stricture and see how you feel about it and then ask what it means about the genre itself. 
itself. Does that mean that the genre is flexible? We're inflexible. We're inflexible. Like a bone-in penis. You tell us. Isabeau, romance or not a romance? It's a womance. Is it a romance or is it not a romance? I don't know yet. I want to think about it some more. We all think it's a womance. We all think it's a womance. What's your initial gut reaction in this moment, though? Because you can always go back on Twitter at mance underscore woe and correct your stance. How do you feel in this moment? Like, talking about the strictures of genre make me feel like it's not wrong to categorize mm-hmm. it that way even though like that feels like a disservice and like I want to sit oh, with that gosh. where it's like it doesn't feel wrong to categorize it that way but yet yeah, feels like a disservice to the text and like that's a weird feeling to sit that's with that's a weird because we love romance we do and it's hard for us to be like this is more than that yeah I am going to say because I have personally liberated my idea of romance from the happily ever after mm-hmm. this is a romance okay it is more than that but I don't think it's more than that I think it's a more accessible to the intelligentsia romance maybe not unlike the Pisces we haven't read it yet we haven't read it yet I don't know that it's like I'm gonna quibble about more than that because like I think romance can be all that I don't know I want to hear from Nick because Nick you don't read a lot of romance yeah Nick I don't um (laughs) I don't No, but I like the idea of romance being allowed to happen on like a finite scale. That like it doesn't have to be happily ever after. That mm-hmm. it can be like happily for a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think like yeah. that happily for now. Discredit or happily ever. Falling, you know, within those parameters. Or maybe a happily ever after isn't just a heteronormative totally relationship conclusion. As we said with the diaspora of one, maybe it's yeah. more sexy to just leave her the property. Yeah. Yeah. But even then, like, should a, a romance be discredited? it's temporary or does Mm. it still like carry weight I feel like there were so many moments in Bear that highlighted that when events happen you carry a little bit of them with you Mm. and like that if we're going to talk about romance seem to be ever after like what about the mishaps and such which you can see like Lou carries and I feel like in a lot of the books that y'all read that I get to listen to everyone has like baggage and and such that's Mm. like important and shapes them that shouldn't be discredited and like I think those are romances maybe the question isn't how Maybe the question is the ever after aspect. Yeah. Maybe if it ends happily for now, that's enough. Well, happily for now is like a contemporary understanding of like happily ever after. But I'm curious about this idea, like the idea that you carry happily with you even as it ends. Like that's like I think you do, and I, like, I think that's I think that's what it is. Is like you are happily ever after in the way that that like resonates. Right. That those feelings you carry bad and good feelings with you. Right. Like and, that's why the ending of Titanic while tragic is like people call it happy sad oh fuck yeah where it's like Rose carried the things that she learned in her five days with Jack with her for the rest of her life until she was 90 and also die or we wouldn't be watching this movie right which is like kind of amazing right and also like the idea that her life was insignificant even though it carried all of the significance of a human sacrifice yeah you know because I think there are questions of like the meaning of life reaching through the text of Bear. Totally. I absolutely loved Bear. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I did too. I am going to buy a copy. Yeah. Because I want to keep it near me. It's an object I want to keep near me. It is wild. I also really want to know what Canadians feel about this book. And like, like whether or not you like fucking venerate Marion Engel, because if you don't, you 
should start. She's a real Canadian treasure. Shit, we talked about a lot of stuff today. So much stuff. When was the last time we talked about that? Nick is one of my favorite persons to talk with. uh, Y'all are my favorite people in the world. Nicholas, this is impossible without you. You make us sound so smart. We're top 20, maybe. You are smart. You are so kind and so smart. And it's been such a delight having you on. I want to make this happen at least quarterly. Quarterly! Quarterly. Quarterly. Core. Maybe Tully. Heart of the Lee. (laughs) Start over? You bastard. Never. Barrel forward. Bear down. Bear down. Bear down. Nick, what what do we close our episodes with? Loosen your stays. But never Never your your principles. principles. Whoa, indeed. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. All editing and music is done by Nick Gravelin. Our logo is by Mary Reichman. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. Feeling woeful about having to wait a whole week for more Womance? Well, cheer up, Buttercup. You can creep or connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, or our website. Our webpage is womancepod.com. If you prefer to be more verbose and or direct, why not send us an email? We're womancemail at gmail.com, and we can't wait to hear from you. In the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast listening app. Until next week. <laughs>